Welcome to Descriptive. I am Khalil and I'm here with Henning. Hey, how's it going? Hey, it's going good. How is it going with you? Excellent. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, so today we have Ed Finkler um, as a guest. Um, so basically, I think you invited him. So what, what is, who is Ed Finkler? What can we say about him? All right. Well, I became uh, interested, in, interested in him uh, quite a while ago. I can't even remember when, but it was probably before 2010. Um, he was uh, doing some talks about PHP on various conferences, and I attended uh, one of his talks and uh, was really impressed. And then he started this um, this podcast with another uh, PHP developer, uh, Chris Harches, and they called the whole thing Dev Hell. And um, it's actually quite funny because they, um, well, they don't really, you know, worry about what they say. Um, so there's a lot of cursing. It's very funny, and it's um, it's about pretty much everything that has to do with development. And um, in one of those episodes. He um, made this this really big um, announcement that he was uh, suffering from depression and I think adult attention deficit disorder, and that really that episode blew me away. And uh, I've been listening. I mean, I was listening to Dev Hell already, but I listened to everything ever since. And it's really interesting. Out of that came. Um, a a series of talks that he started giving about this subject and now he's part of the open sourcing mental health um, initiative which tries to bring awareness to not only developers but also the employers of developers on how to deal with this because it is a is a very prevalent um, problem and uh, a lot of people do suffer from this and probably don't talk about it so That's why um, I wanted to invite him to talk about that as well as his PHP career, of course. Interesting. And uh, the podcast is still uh, going on? Yeah, they they started, I think, in 2011. And they're on and off. You know, they're not mm -hmm. super regular all the time. But yeah. uh, they took a quite a long break at one point where I thought they kind of quit. But they're back and... Uh, They do they do live episodes from conferences. Um, they both they're both speakers, and uh, Chris is also a conference organizer. And they gave each other a hard time on the podcast, so it's always quite uh, amusing. Cool. And, and so, what, what was the, the what impressed you about him at first when you saw him speaking about PHP? Well, it was just uh, his um, the way he he, he presents. Um, he's very very casual, and he's funny. And I think the the thing that was uh, interesting to me is is how he started out. And I can't remember where I heard this, but he was basically doing JavaScript way way back when, and he was doing it on the server. He wrote this, um, and well, I'm not sure if it was on the server. He wrote this chat client called Spaz, and I just thought that was was really interesting that he was basically writing um, you know JavaScript applications before the Angulars and Embers and Backbones, etc. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. So, yeah, definitely uh, excited to see what's going to come out from this interview. Yep. Same here. Welcome to Descriptive. My name is Henning Glattergutz, and I'm here with my co-host Khalil Lechelt. Hello. How's it going? All good. 
Excellent. Our guest today is Ed Finkler. He is a JavaScript, PHP, and Python developer. The lead developer at GraphStory, as well as a mental health advocate and the co-host of the DevHell podcast. Welcome, Ed. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. So we'll start um, at the beginning and uh, go right ahead and tell us how you got interested in computers and how you started programming. Okay, so that's... the. the those actually are pretty far apart, what funny thing is. I was interested in computers long before I actually did any programming. Um, I think I got interested in computers because of playing Space Invaders on an Atari 2600 at a friend's house when I was a kid. And actually, maybe before that, I remember being at a friend of my older brother's house and they were playing one of those old Pong units. It wasn't an Atari one, probably. It was, you know, they made like a thousand of those old Pong units, if you guys remember. Maybe you don't. I actually collect some old stuff yeah, like that. I do. So, yeah, so I've got a few, a couple of those old Pong units back there in the early, late 70s that you saw, like, the, you know, they made hundreds of those. And that's, um, that's just the, the two lines on each side, and you put, like kick right. the ball back and forth, yeah. Right, yeah. So, and usually it was the difference with those kind of units is that um, they didn't have cartridges. I mean, that was like the big thing that was significant about cartridge-based stuff was that um, it would you know it would actually load up a different game. And these, uh, you know, these units had a couple things maybe hard coded in them, but they were basically you know it was a, maybe a few variants of the same game. Um, so yeah. Um, and yeah, it was just, you know, two paddles, uh, on, you know, two, two lines you moved up and down on each side of the screen. And then, um, you tried to bounce this square, uh, quote unquote ball that, that bounced back and forth. And, uh, it was kind of like tennis or, or more actually more like air hockey. If you ever played air hockey on one of those, it was like, it's plays more like air hockey. So, um, and so I remember that, and I remember thinking that was really, really cool to like see these things moving around on the screen. And I thought that was super neat and the coolest thing ever. And so I was really into that stuff when I was a kid. I was really into video games, and I was I got, you know, peripherally, you get interested in computers at that time because, um, you know, there was a lot of, I guess you'd say there was a lot of crossover, at least it seemed to me, um, between console gaming and then you would also see there were a lot of, lots of home computers available and not, boy, it's so different now. I mean, it was so neat in the late 70s and early 80s and the mid 80s and stuff where there was this great diversity of um computers by different manufacturers that had their had their own operating systems that had their own um, you know they would usually come with basic built into them uh, so there was a programming language built right in and it was a lot of people thought that was going to be kind of the future they didn't necessarily think that there was going to be this dominant you know one OS that pretty much everybody used and things like that there were tons of different things you know um, I mean nobody talks about like that Commodore the Commodore 64 is a top-selling computer of all time, right? And uh, it's uh, 
this and nobody remembers Commodore. You know, you talk to somebody now, they're like, okay, there's Windows machines and there's Macs, <laughs> and that's it, yeah. right? You know, they don't <clears throat> that there was just just all this wide array of stuff, you know, and and so, you know, I'm nostalgic about that stuff, but. It was it was cool and exciting. It was an exciting time to kind of be a kid who was interested in that stuff. I didn't have and, an access. And you said to you collect those, right? You, you yeah. Now them. I do. What yeah. I do is I make up for the fact that I couldn't get those things mostly when I was a kid. So <laughs> I uh, so yeah, I collect. I I own about you know, thirty or forty different gaming consoles and and computers. Um, so when I say computers, I mean like a, I own an Amiga 600, an Atari 1040ST, um, you know, a couple Commodore 64s. Um, let's see, I'm looking over at my. And they all I'm work. Looking, uh, yeah, yeah, most of them work. Um, cool. The ST, I don't have a monitor that'll work with it, so I see it turn on, but I'm not 100% sure it actually works. And and tracking that down is hard because I would actually have to buy a, the monitors aren't cheap, but it doesn't use. It's not easy to hook it up to anything else. Um, let's see what else do I have here. Oh, those are like sort of the major ones that I have. Like I don't have an. I would like to own. I wish kind of had an Apple II. That would be nice to have. Um, and I don't own a um, like an old Mac. Uh, like the original Macs would be ne- would be neat to have, or Lisa or something like that. But I also own a lot of consoles. Like I own a, uh, a Sega Master System, a three Sega Genesis um, of different varieties. Uh, I have an original um, Odyssey, like not an Odyssey two, but an Odyssey, which was the original cartridge based unit that, that came out in seventy two. Um, all the way up. I mean, I own an Xbox One and a PS4 now. So, I mean, I own most of those machines, uh, you know, coming up from probably like the early 80s up to now. So, um, it's just something I collect because I'm, I'm still, I really like that. I have a lot, you know, I guess it's, I get a lot of joy out of, you know, watching those things and and looking at old pixel art and stuff like that i think it's really cool so yeah. it appeals to me a lot but the the thing is though and i you know i had a commodore 64 and i remember i remember um the manual that came with the commodore 64 had a if you can hear things that, that's squeaking that's probably i think that's my cat which is walking around and probably going to start trying to stand on my computer here in a second so i apologize for that <laughs> um so if you hear any of that that's what's going on i'm trying to please it right now so it will stay away from me um the uh i had a counter 64 and there was some stuff about using you know because it, it when you turned it on it booted up almost immediately and it booted into you know i guess a command prompt of sorts and then but it had it loaded up um basic right into it so an implementation of basic the basic programming language, um, which was, I think, like Microsoft Basic V2 or something like that. It was not a, if I if I understand correctly, which I'm not a great not a great historian on this, that it was not a particularly advanced version of Basic. That some computers that had had newer versions that were a little better. But I don't I don't really know. But the 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 point is that I uh, you know you could program some stuff with it, and I 
got interested in that and decided I remember doing this one day where I was going to go through some it had some basic tutorial in the manual that came with it on making a balloon sprite um a sprite being a like it's a it was basically like a graphic and it had this hardware built into it where it made it easy to move those things around because otherwise it was computationally very expensive to like redraw the whole screen. I, I don't really know exactly how, but anyway, sprites are sort of like, okay, you have this bitmap and you, it's easy to move around the screen, relatively speaking. So it, uh, you'd, you know, tell it to put dots in these, you know, particular memory places and, and locations. And then it would, you would tell it somehow to animate it. So it bounces around the screen. And for some reason, I could never get it to draw correctly. Like it was always off and I didn't know why. And I didn't have anybody else who would help me with it. You know, I just didn't have like, I didn't have like a community of like computer users that I could go do stuff with. I was kind of on my own with that stuff. And so programming wise, I never really got into it. I was kind of like, I just couldn't get it to work, I remember. And I, so I just kind of gave up on it. So I, I love playing games on it and I like using computers a lot, but I did not program them. I would dibble and dabble every once in a while with stuff as, you know, we'd get a PC, and, you know, you know uh, I remember getting a 60 megahertz Pentium that had the, um, that Pentium division flaw in, in the chip where it would, it would, it would do division incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we had one of those and, uh, you know, I'd fool around with it a little bit. I, re- I would read lots of magazines because that was like the only way that I could sort of find other people who were interested in it. Back when I was a kid, it was not cool to be into computers and video games. <laughs> um, and there was, so, you know, that, that was like, dis- like as distinctly different now as that that is not, that was not the case that, you know, people as friends would generally weren't really into that stuff too much. And, um, you know, so I, I was kind of, I was kind of a loner in that respect. And I I remember I buy lots of magazines and read those things like find video gaming magazines and, uh, computer magazines and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, so I sort of peripherally knew a lot about programming, but, and it was hard to miss it because these magazines usually had like in the back of it, they'd have pages of, basic programs or machine language programs that you'd enter in. Mm-hmm. And um, the machine language stuff is crazy because you're just typing in like a bunch of numbers. And yeah, this, li- this, this thing, it would go on for like eight pages and you're just typing yeah. in numbers because that's all you're doing. It's not, it's not even assembly language. You know, it wasn't as comprehensible as assembly. It was pure machine language and and they, they they there was also like there was this checker program that you could type in and it would like check to i guess it must have checked some kind of consistency to see if you'd made an error because it would probably there would probably be some kind of like off by x error or something like that so it would like check your code but i, I never understood how that worked because you have to enter in the program to, to the the checker program too so if you screw that up i don't know it's a chicken and egg thing <laughs> anyway um so, and I remember like I did a little bit of programming, like I did a couple, com- like a computer class once for a week and I sort of, so it was like, I kind of understood how it worked, but it's just, I didn't have anybody who, around me who was interested and I just didn't have that, like, it, I didn't find that compelling reason to do it. Mm-hmm. What, and what, I, when did that come then? 
Well, boy, you know, we're, this this is going to be a while. Um, so (laughs) that, that, no, um, I ended up, I actually got a minor in computer science in college, but, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I, I ended up getting a major in creative writing, um, and a minor in computer science. So I have a, a BA in English. Um, and that was, Really, because I did the CS stuff, and I was like, I really wasn't very good at it. Like, it just didn't click with me, and it didn't click, like, to be excited. Like, I was the kind of person who would, I would get excited about, like, by that time, I was in college, it was like, you know, I was interested in computer hardware and, like, you know, building my own computers and stuff like that, and I was into that stuff, and I was into doing things with computers again, like, I... I had started doing when I was in high school, I had started publishing zines and um, I did all that stuff on computers. I did, you know, graphic design and, and page layout and stuff like that was, you know, stuff like PageMaker and junk like that. Um, and so I was really into again yeah, using them and I just was, but I, I didn't start programming. And it, even when I was in the CS classes, it didn't click. I sucked at it. Like I did, I remember getting. There was this thing where if you got an F, you could retake it and sort of exit off your GPA. Like, it would still be listed, but it wouldn't count in your GPA if you redid it. But if you got a D, you couldn't redo it. And I could also could not get my minor in CS if I got a D. And I remember having to go to the professor who, taught, who was teaching me uh, the 68,000 assembly code for the Motorola 68,000 CPUs. And we did that because it's easier. The 68,000 CPUs were the assembler in there is a lot simpler, I guess. And I had to go ask him. I was like, uh, so if I'm going to get a D, could you just fail me? <laughs> because I was, I was just not good at it. And, um, I mean, there's a number of different reasons for why I kind of wasn't good at it and why I didn't and click. Did he? Uh, I got a C-. And uh, oh. which was the bare minimum I could get in that class and still have it count towards my major or my minor, excuse me. So I did that and I did get the minor in CS and I still was not very good at it. Now I had during college started to pick up like HTML and this is, I started doing this stuff. Like I remember using mosaic as like our first browser, right? And we had a, a version of Mosaic that ran on HP UX, the HP Unix stuff, because we had a bunch of dumb terminals that ran on, like, a, at the time, some sort of, you know, uh, big HP machine that was in a computer lab. And uh, the version of Mosaic that we had compiled there, like, it couldn't read JPEG, I think. I mean, it was, this was a long time. This is, you know... Can you imagine using a browser that could not display yeah, it? Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, but it did. It just, it just did. I mean, it, you know, and and you have to remember at the time this was this was like pre Netscape. This was, um, web pages were n- n- a very new thing. This would have been like in ninety five or ninety six, and it, there was no, you know, necessarily a thing that it would be a big deal. You know, that it, it was kind of surprising. it was going to be a big deal, but like feeling out like what the web was going to be. And the web was very different then. It was very simple. It was like everything was super simple and it was really aimed at very technical people then, you know. 
And, uh, I mean, you still, I, when I started, when I went to college, pre-web, at least that was available there, you used stuff like Gopher to find stuff. That was how you found stuff. I don't yeah. even know if anyone listening to this knows what Gopher is, but it was a thing that was before the web that you found information with, or Veronica, or crap like that. I mean, so, you know, you use so all this was when the internet was pretty much still in mostly in the universities, right? And hadn't right, exactly. really gone so, mainstream yet. Yeah. Right. The internet, of course, had existed for like, you know, 25 years before then, but it was all text-based and it existed in research centers, universities, academia. So that, that was it, right? It didn't exist outside of that. So, you know, I was on Usenet and, 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 and looked at Veronica to find stuff and things like that. I mean, it was all text-based. And, um, you know, I got excited, I think, about, about the web because I liked this visual medium that reminded me of what I liked about doing desktop publishing stuff. Like, that's, I really dug that. And so I kind of got excited about that. And I was into those kinds of things. And I was in the graphic design. I mean, it doesn't mean I was any good, but I was, I was into it. Okay, so what happens is that I get a job out of college making web pages. And really, all I knew how to do was write HTML. I knew how to write HTML. I knew how to do a lot of stuff like with computers. Like I could do a ton of stuff with computers. And I could... Um, I was good at, compare, again, relatively speaking, I was good at graphic design and things like that. The standards have gotten significantly higher since I did that. Uh, but I was but you, were, you were uh, like a, an expert computer user, I guess is what you would I, say. But, but yeah, you didn't would, see yourself as a developer yet. No, I, I was definitely not a developer. I mean, yeah. I guess I was an HTML developer, but the, I mean, and at the time that was not like an obvious thing, but the, the, the combination of like having a sort of decent eye for layout and, and being able to write HTML and then as CSS, you know, becomes a thing, being able to do stuff with that, well, then you can kind of do things, right? So the, uh, I didn't, get into being what a quote unquote any kind, really any kind of programming because you know HTML is not a programming language it's a, it's a language but it's not a programming language it's a markup language and so what was different about it was I remember and this was really key for me and I think has always been why I learned things was I got motivated and excited about the idea of there was some kind of thing where I think it was some kind of like food tracker that the um, partner I was with at the time was doing like Weight Watchers or something like that and I was going to track I was like you know I see what they're doing and you know you could track something like this and I wonder if you could and I was like I bet I could build a web page with that and so I started doing stuff and I looked I learned a modicum of JavaScript which was very little at the time right so this would have been maybe around 1999 you know Mm -hmm. And and I was like, okay, well, I can learn how to do that. And I was like, I actually wrote something that worked, except there was no persistence. You know, if I reload the page, it, all the data goes away. Right. Right? Because, you know, we didn't have Firebase or stuff like that. Or, you know, you couldn't <laughs> do that stuff out of a browser. Now browsers can, like, you know call your mom on that kind of thing and, <laughs> and stuff. And But back then, you couldn't do jack with it. It was like, hey, I can... Uh, make a button turn a different color when you float over it. That was like, that was the 
that was the, that was magic. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I was. I don't remember what the profanity rules are here, but since you didn't want to say the word dork, I'm going to uh, <laughs> play off that. But that was the, the biz uh, back then. Um, you can tell uh, there's two there's two words that define like when I started do- when I was doing this stuff. One, people actually called people webmasters. That was the first yep. thing. That was a thing. Like you were, oh yeah, he's the webmaster. He he knows he's the guy who handles that stuff. Webmaster, right? And you, and then the second thing was this was a little bit later was DHTML. So if you know if you ever heard if you've unironically said the word DHTML or webmaster, then you've been doing this a long time. Um, so yeah, so you could. So uh, that was the thing. I was like, I can't. What am I supposed to do with this? It's, it's never gonna. I can't save it anywhere. It's just you know goes away. It's like, that's, well, that's not very useful. Well, so I, I remember I had taken like I had to take seven or eight CS courses. So I, I kind of sort of got it, but it still didn't really. It sort of had done some stuff, but it didn't really click for me. And then what clicked for me was. My friend uh, John Madison, who now works, uh, he lives in Seattle, and he was like, he was the sysadmin uh, for the company that I worked for, uh, which was a uh, sort of a digital media arm of a really a video production company, right? And uh, this guy John Madison, who's still he's a now he's a big old developer in Seattle and does I think it works for Nordstrom, like doing big e-commerce junk and stuff like that. Super smart guy. And he was like, "Oh, you should check." I think I must have been talking to him about it. I don't remember why, but he said you should check out PHP, this new language that's like really good for that kind of stuff. And I was like, "What? Okay, <laughs> right." So I just decided to start messing with it, and I was like, oh, wow, I can actually do this. And this tells you there were two things that got me in the room with it. The first thing was that I was motivated. I had a, a thing that I wanted to make, and the scope was small enough that it was actually doable. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is that it was easy enough to start using... That like the learning curve is shallow was shallow enough to do very basic PHP stuff that um, that I could start picking it up, right? Um, and so by doing that, I started teaching myself how to do that stuff. And so this was PHP three. Um, wow. And like I said, it would have been ninety nine two thousand about that. And that was probably the time where I'd started moving from being what I would, you know, you call sort of like a, just a basically HTML, CSS person to doing also development. Now, I made all the same mistakes that I, of course, yell at people for not understanding how to do now. And, uh, you know, any PHP developer worth their salt would not would be like, oh my God, how would you write stuff like that, right? But I did all those same things, like I, um, because we didn't really know any better, you know, I was like, put a, put, uh, you know, database, think of, I would think of every page 
uh, every you know each page on the website would have a PHP a corresponding PHP file on the server, right? And which is you know a ridiculous idea now. Why would you, anyone do that? You know, that's, but it would also have like the HTML and the CSS and yes, everything else those were all spot. intermingled, right? Yeah. So <laughs> it would be at the st- the top of it would be like you define a variable that was like the title of the page, and so you do some basic, very basic templating using include statements, um, and it would be like it would it would like you do you know, SQL queries, like, right there in that page, mixed in with everything. Separation of concerns was not a thing that I knew anything about. I didn't know that. I was like, I, I, I guess, I don't know, I can do it this way. Why would I need to separate it? You know, what, what's the point of that? Um, and I don't so, think at that point anybody knew that or was doing that. I mean, Well, probably, like, the guys who worked in Xerox Park were like, you idiots. Um, <laughs> But uh, but I didn't, and I think I think the majority of people who had grown, you know, had sort of started off with the web that way. No, did not know it, and you know, one of the things that obviously you and looking back and having read things like I go back and read what's the actual original paper on MVC, for example, and you know that's a really really old paper that that, that describes that that design pattern, and like. So many things you see, like these new, like these sort of new mediums or new platforms show up, and oftentimes they end up going through these same cycles where you see them discover things that were significant, but other other sort of platforms or technology sort of communities or whatever, oh, they did that like 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's really um, funny. I mean, I see, like, I, I, I noticed that, like, a couple of years ago, I was speaking at a Ruby conference, a really, really nice conference. It was Madison Ruby. And I remember hearing a lot of people talking about, um, apparently, the Rails community had discovered that maybe it wasn't always a good idea to have, like, one big monolithic application that handled everything. And... Um, well, I mean, that's what you get when you have a big full-stack framework is that people use that for everything and they don't sort of think about, well, maybe I need to break this out. Maybe there's problems with having a really huge complex application stuff like that. And that's not, not necessarily to criticize it, but it was interesting to me to see folks where they were sort of like they were kind of discovering that. And, you know, I could see like with folks, so I'd work with PHP, where we were like, yeah, duh, <laughs> right? Of course, you know. <laughs> but at the same point, you know, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, as a PHP developer, I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't follow any design patterns. To me, it was all very much like, it was really just an extension of what I had done with HTML and Apache and Apache directives and having pages. And To me, it was a language to enhance um, web pages and let you do stuff and do some things to make things a little bit more modular but it didn't i didn't have a completely different paradigm than i really did in say 1997 where it was like there's an html page there's a page a file that has html markup in it and you put it in a certain place and apache loads it up it it apache receives the url you send it and you say i want that file and it sends that file to you and then your browser yeah. interprets it for you this was just an enhancement on that on that 
pattern, right? To me, that was all it was. Now, now I've gone beyond that and I see it as like, I would, I would never want to write something like that. Like I actually had to, had to deal with an application that was written sort of that like one page, one file per page uh, thing today. And I was like, oh, it was so bad, right? But that's just, you know, that was just the way it was put together, you know, and, and the, there's lots of stuff like that that still exists, but it was interesting there's to see that. A lot of that. stuff like that, yeah. There's tons of stuff because mm-hmm. people just build what they can build. They're, I mean, you know. And it lives and, so much longer than you would ever expect. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. Like, that's the thing that sort of gets into a, 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 a thing that I feel like I've learned is that I see folks, like, iterating really, really fast on um, – on like, uh, um, you know, framework libraries or, well, excuse me, frameworks or libraries or things like that. I see that particularly in JavaScript. And JavaScript, is, like that community is, iter- is, is still iterating very quickly. There's tons and tons of stuff going on with it. Um, and they're sort of anxious to sort of, it seems like, to get to the next thing. Like, it's like, if you, you know, a year later, like, you're, like, everybody's using something else, right? But I don't know. I, I it might have helped that I worked, like, I worked at a university in one department for nine years, and I found that stuff just doesn't go away, it just, <laughs> yeah. there's no way to kill it, right? And particularly if there's not some motivating reason to get rid of it. Um, I mean, there's a little more turnover, like in the private sector, in the commercial sector, but it's not nearly what people think it would be. And I think maybe if you sort of have a thing where you're like jumping from job to job, or alternately, if you're in sort of a thing where it's like, well, you're doing, maybe you're working for a consultancy or something like that, and you have different clients you mean you might have say four or five different clients in a year well those all those projects go on and you don't necessarily and you know you might iterate a lot because you don't have you 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 build that thing and then you know you don't worry about it you go on to the next thing right so i could imagine some scenarios where that you would get that kind of attitude about it, or maybe just switch jobs a lot or whatever but my experience is that um with companies that are at least stay in business um, things don't go away, right? And so, uh, you know, as much as you're kind of like, yeah, we need to iterate off of this, like, it's this is still running, you know, uh, PHP 4 or something, you know, some crazy thing like that. Well, it's... Uh, you know, stuff like that just doesn't go away if there's no if there's no compelling reason for them to do so. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, if it so, still does the job and, and it uh, makes the money, then there's no reason at all. Right, and particularly if most businesses aren't, and maybe this is, you know, maybe it's changing or maybe it's just that I work at companies that tend to be more like this. But I, at least my feeling is that most businesses aren't particularly engineering-driven. So, um if you're not the person, if you're sort of not really conscious of why it might be problematic to still be running, say, really old stuff, like if, from a standpoint of like security risk, from a standpoint of you know developer productivity and things like that, um, 
well, why would they change that stuff? You know, it's working. Why am I going to have you do a bunch of work on something that works fine? You know, why am I going to have, like, why are you going to do a bunch of work so it gets back to where it was? To, to the end user, or maybe to the person who's running the business that says, uh, this does exactly what it did before. Why, wh- you know, why do that? Why spend Yeah, money? why spend a bunch of money on it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, there's not much, you know, what's, what's the motivation there? And, and, I mean, that's something to keep in mind. I think we all kind of have to, is that the whole reason that we build these kinds of things, that we do these kinds of things, is to allow people to do stuff that they wouldn't be able to do normally. And whether it's it allows them to do it on a it allows them to do something completely different that they weren't capable of, or it allows them to do things that they could do, but on a scale that they wouldn't be able to do before. Um, Harper Reed talks about technology as a force multiplier, and I think that makes a ton of sense, right? It um, and you can really empower people that way uh, by giving them tools to do stuff and to make get you know do more than they could before. Um, but the reason why the tools exist is not for you, not for you, the developer, usually. It's usually for the sake of whoever the user is, and that's usually not you, yep. right? <clears throat> so um, it, so at the end of the day, it's, it, they, they don't really care how it's accomplished. They do not give a rat's ass about um, you know, design patterns and stuff like that. They just care if it does what it does, and if it doesn't do it, then it's not worth anything to them. If it does it, that's fine. They don't care. Like, do you, I mean, it's kind of, you know, lots of, I, I, in the PHP community, lots and lots of developers, uh, you know, like sort of, uh, the, what I would call like, um, uh, say, I, I want to say core PHP developers. That's not accurate, but actually, you know, doing PHP development as opposed to like, I'm a Drupal developer, I'm a WordPress developer, I'm things mm-hmm. like that. Well, they'll uh, be like, oh, the WordPress code base is so bad, right? But that is irrelevant. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, it is only, it's irrelevant if, well, what's the point of the project? The point of that project is to allow end users to do a bunch of stuff, like do certain things, allow them to publish easily, to be a platform that's for the users, to be able to you know, do a bunch of things, and to enable them to do that. The point of that project is not to make developers' lives easier. If it was, they wouldn't pick, keep making the decisions that they did, right? Right. It would be written it long ago. It's you know, it's it's a different kind of thing. Um, you know, there's a lot of smart people who work on that code base. It's not like they don't know. It's that they make a conscious decision not to follow, uh, to to maintain backwards compatibility, and to maintain compatibility in general over almost anything else. And so um, that's a valid decision, I think. And that and based on that, you make you know th- then it follows that they do x y and z. So there's still a bunch of procedural code in it and they didn't, you know, and it's still super hard to figure out like how does the code flow work and it seems, you know, it's really it can be really confusing because it's kind of hard to follow. But the users don't care. <laughs> they don't care yeah. if it does that, you know. So, so anyway, at the, the, so that was a long thing about like I was supposed to tell you how I started being a developer and then we're off another thing. So I started being <laughs> a developer like that, but I, I think ultimately I've kind of ended up here after doing it for a long time and sort of realizing some things. At least uh, to me, uh, you know, understanding of where I come from with that stuff. 
Um, yeah, but so you you started basically got into it um, with PHP and went. Yep. I think f- for that time period, I mean that was the exact same same path I went through. Is like PHP was the the lower or the lowest um, had the lowest barrier to to, to entry, mm-hmm. and um, you know there was no you know a lot of uh, guidance around as to what best best practices were and 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 frameworks weren't really around yet either so you did what what you just explained and uh, where where did you go from there is like um did you stay in php or move yeah. to something else or M- mostly and i I'm, I'm still would call myself primarily a php developer but um i i've had dalliances um i did I started doing more JavaScript stuff and kind of getting into that. And I really got into it when, oh gosh, this would have been like 2006. Okay, there's a couple things I should even mention before that. I started, I did, have had an interest in doing um, like desktop application development for a while. And I, I don't do any of it anymore. But for, for quite a while I was interested in that. And I messed around with a um, and I can't remember exactly why I decided to pursue this one, but I remember I, I you know this I was still using OSX and I, I started with OSX on OSX ten. Well, I guess you're supposed to say OS ten. OS ten ten point one point five I think was the first version that I used, and um, I was. Uh, and I messed around. This was old enough where I remember messing around with writing desktop applications for OSX in Java. Because at the time, Java was the second language that was officially supported by Apple for the Cocoa libraries. Um, they eventually dropped that. And, and then so only Objective-C was the, was the, until Swift, Objective-C was the only way to do it for, mm-hmm. for many, many years. And um, so I messed around with some of that. I did a, a little bit. With, that was my experience with Java, like for at least 15 years. All it was was just messing around with it there and basically not getting it to work. Um, I did do a little bit of work with um, some Objective-C stuff, but I found it at the time, I found it difficult to work with. I think I would probably still find it difficult to work with. I think I didn't under... The syntax was a little bit hard for me to wrap my head around with the way that it worked. And I think I think probably now, if I kind of stuck with it, I probably could have could learn it. But um, at the time, it was not something I wanted to keep pursuing. And uh, what I did end up doing was using this platform that had been around, and it's pretty obscure, and this change of name. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Real Basic. No. And it Well, so it was basically, no pun intended, um, <laughs> It was a lot like um, Visual Basic, but it was object-oriented. And um, now the company is called, this terrible name, it's X-O-J-O, and I do not know how to pronounce that. Zojo? I don't know. (laughs) I, they finally so the company the company's still around and the platform is still around, and I think one of the primary things that they want to do was especially as Microsoft sort of deprecated Visual Basic, they sort of moved into this place where it was like you could do development with it and you could do cross platform development with it. I think originally it was 
like a a Mac OS seven or eight app, or and and you could build stuff with that. But you could also, you know, when I started messing with, you could also compile Windows stuff with it. You could also do that. anyway. I started messing around with it, and as sort of a hobbyist on on that kind of level, and I actually had built a couple things with it. The main thing that I built that was of some note, I guess, was a uh, a an application that was really a front end for the lame uh, MP3 encoder, uh, which is you know a command line MP3 encoder. So it was basically just a front end for that, and you could like pop a CD in, and it would you could rip the CD, and because OSX actually exposes all the tracks as files on an audio CD, and um, so you, you could do CD ripping, and it could do uh, and it just used lame to do any any regular encoding you could just drop files on it and if lame could do it it would spit it out and you could set settings and all that junk with it so that was slightly notable I guess um, but one of the things that was interesting about that was that was the first time I had ever done anything like event driven right um, and I didn't really know that's what I was doing at the time but that is what I was doing at the time mm-hmm. um, uh, and UI development is real different, right? Um, because it's so, it's everything happens asynchronously. It's very different than the patterns that you would follow with a server side language like PHP. Um, whereas, like, there's a request, you build the page, you spit the page out, and then the next request comes in, you build the page, you spit the page out, right? And there's 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 really no persistence between iterations on that. You know, those processes. You know, it builds and shuts down completely from that. And this is very different. This is this persistent state that you have to modify along the way and it taught me about things like you know saving preference files and loading preference files and all just a bunch of different stuff and was I good at it no but I was interested enough and compelled enough to learn how to do it and it was accessible enough that I could could do that you know I I I was able to push my way into learning that stuff and you know figuring out how to do a bunch of different things so that was, you know, a weird sort of uh, side note. But um, probably the the next notable thing I did was, and I, this actually started out as a real basic project, but I switched it. Was um, I made a Twitter client really early on in the Twitter ecosystem um, called Spaz, and um, it was originally a real basic app, actually, and I couldn't do what I wanted to do with it, which was. I really wanted to be able to skin it the way you could like skin Winamp if you remember Winamp. Oh yeah. I really wanted I to be able that to that was a that was a Twitter client. I thought it was a chat application, but yeah, and now I remember. Right. So I actually used it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um and so originally as a real basic app, it was terrible as a real basic app, but um I started working on it as a JavaScript, HTML, and CSS app because this thing came along called Adobe Air, A-I-R. And it was notable uh, because they pushed it as you could do desktop development either in Flash or in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And they promoted both of those sides equally when Adobe Air first launched. And um, so I was like, oh, that's interesting. I should try that. And it worked really well because, okay, I knew HTML and CSS really well. Kind of, sort of knew JavaScript, but not great. <laughs> um, but I did it okay, right? And I learned a heck of a lot from it. I'll tell you that. 
Um, so I started working on this desktop application, and people seemed to like it. And people seemed to like it. It was open source, and I and it was like you could do make different skins for it and stuff like that. And you know, like was it used by millions of people? No. Was it used by I don't know thousands maybe? Yeah, I think so. And people seemed to like it, you know. And it was a pretty successful open source program project that ran for several years. And you know, um, parallel to that, I also did. Um, I got approached by a company, uh, which you probably know, named Palm. Um, and they said, hey, we are um, making a platform for mobile, and you'll be able to write the applications using JavaScript and HTML and CSS. And I said, well, I've done something like that. And apparently what happened was a friend of mine who worked at Twitter very early on, like back when they had like 15 employees, um, knew of my product, knew of my the client that I'd written and said, uh, they, Palm asked them, uh, we have this kind of platform and we want somebody to write something for us. And they said, maybe you should talk to this guy. So they approached <laughs> me. And this was like all hush-hush. Like I had to sign an NDA and things like that. And... What it turned out was it was this platform called WebOS that Palm was doing. And, you know, Palm was a, wasn't sure if that company was going to be around for much longer. Um, but, so this uh, is around the early 2000s? Oh, gosh. When mid? did this have been? I cannot. I'm trying to see when did WebOS, when was like the first Palm pre-released? And that was, I'm going to load this up Must here. on mid, mid-2000s. Yeah, right. Um, because the iPhone must have been out already, so right? It was first announced in January 2009. Oh, wow. So I okay. heard about, and I heard about uh, WebOS probably like five or six months before that. Mm -hmm. And it was released in June 2009. And with the first phone, which was a Sprint-only phone, the Palm Pre. And uh, so I did a completely different application. I rewrote it completely from scratch because, I, I, one, didn't know what the hell I was doing. It did share some sort of, like, library code. But for the most part, it was all from scratch um, because of, you know, it used a whole different really, when you wrote applications for it, they said, yeah, you could write HTML, JavaScript, CSS. And you kind of could, yes, but really what they did was everything was, they, they had written a framework, an application framework, a development framework, and like if you wanted access to the services that the phone provided, you had to use, you really had to use that, and it was very hard to figure out how to use it otherwise. So you kind of had to do that. Um, so uh, I remember... So it was like the uh, it was you know available first day when you would buy that phone you download it and it was you could download Spaz as a Twitter client and I was kind of proud of it because it was significant in that it was also I think the only op maybe the only open source application that was available for that platform at the time when it came out um, it was certainly the only open source Twitter client that was available. Um, and uh, there was a there was another Twitter client that came out too, um, uh, and I can't remember the name. Tweed maybe Tweed was that it? There is a bunch of bird stuff, um, <laughs> but uh, I specifically did not choose a bird name because I thought it was corny. Um, and uh, 
the Tweet app was probably a bunch better, but um, I don't know. Mine looked flashier. Um, and I really liked the, you know, the skinning stuff and things like that. So I was pretty active in that WebOS stuff for quite a while too. And it, it was running this pretty, so the, uh, as a developer, I was doing tons and tons and tons of JavaScript and running this open source project and had people contributing and things like that. Um, and it was really interesting, particularly working on a, a work on an open source project that was, really for end users specifically. It was not for like super nerdy people who like, it wasn't like I was writing Emacs, right? You know, where I was yeah. writing some command line Twitter client like a, a friend of mine did. Um, this is something that was not for sort of like computer dudes and computer people, uh, men, women, whatever. Uh, this was something that was specifically for end users. And it was interesting to see how much of a crap they did not give about the fact that it was open source. Um, yeah, I was going to, so yeah. since you signed the NDA, they actually, I presume they hired you to do this, right? No, it was more oh. like, would you like to? So no, they didn't, oh. they didn't pay me. Um, okay. Honestly, uh, if they had been smart, they would have paid a lot of people to have worked on it. Um, <laughs> yeah, they no, did not. It and I, I would argue that that was, you know, that was what they probably should have done if they wanted to compete. Um, and it didn't. I mean, you can go about and look at what happened with WebOS, which was a, a, a great operating system, some decent hardware, and uh, a um, Palm was a company that could not pull off what they were trying to do. Simply didn't have the resources. Um, I mean, I think it's telling that I was one of the first application developers for it. And they could not get me a piece of hardware to test it on. Wow. Not, not one phone. They did not give me one phone. And so what happened was, I remember when it came out, and I started, and I saw people using it. Like, I saw a couple of videos of it, and I was like, oh my god, this is so slow. Because I did all the development in browser on a desktop machine. <laughs> Right, so it was like running. I was using like oh, Safari or something like that, right, to actually test it, because you could run all that stuff in that. Or what you could do is you could run it in a VM. They eventually got VirtualBox images, and you could run WebOS as a VM in there, and it still ran way, way, way faster than the real hardware. Yeah, and uh, it was really that was probably the biggest point of frustration that I had was that it was it ran so much slower and it was so frustrating that I did I couldn't check it and um, I couldn't believe that nobody like told me either like didn't anybody at Palm think like boy this is not working really well like um, like after like if you used it for like an hour it would slow down and just like lock up right <laughs> and. It's like, well, why didn't anybody say anything about this, right? Well, I don't know. Either they actually never tried it or it just didn't, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, couldn't even get hardware for it. But did you uh, ask them if you could open source it or, or you just did that? No, I, I was like, I'm, it's going to be open source. And actually, oh, okay. I remember the night, like it was, it was going to come out on like Monday or Tuesday. And the weekend before, I get a call from somebody who was like in charge of the developer relations thing, and they said, "Hey, um, could you maybe hold off on releasing the source code uh, when it comes out on Monday? Because 
our lawyers haven't had a chance to really look over <laughs> it all. And so could you not do that? Thanks. And like left me a voicemail. And there are so many bigger things that I could have been worried about. Uh, but I was like furious about this because this was very important to me. And, so, so, so. and um, but it was important to me because it was very important to me philosophically and morally that this was an open source thing. I had told everybody it was open source and I had waited like seven months to release the code, which was not how I worked. I am a person that when I start working on stuff, I open, I, I tell everybody about it way before that I should. Like, I don't, I'm not the person who's like, who, who plays this like, Hey, magically here's this thing that's all finished. And isn't it awesome? I'm like, Nope. Hey, I'm started working on something. Here's the 0.001 version of it. And it, it barely like functions. Uh, and, but it's going to be cool. Right. Um, that's kind of like how I like to do stuff. And that's, that's just me. I can't hold it in, I guess. And, uh, and they, you know, I already had to hold it in for like six or seven months, which sucked. It was really not fun for me to do that. And yeah. then I, I was, I was flipped out on those guys because I was so pissed off about it. And I was really pissed off because I had been telling them for months that I was going to open source it. And now you want to wait, right? <laughs> like yeah. the day before, like two days before. So I was like, no, I'm not. I'm going to pull it. F you guys. I'm not doing that. <laughs> and um, I sh- the person was like, and I was, I was probably far too mean and, and, and um, curt with her than I needed to be. Uh, but she like called their lawyers or something. And the lawyers event like actually went and looked and signed off on it because you know, like any, like it is, it is a different vibe, man. And it, it's, you know, when you, when everything you've done in technology has been open source, when you run into a company that's like, uh, why would we let other people have our source code? It is weird. Super weird. Because they're very concerned about all these legal stuff. It's like, oh, we got to run it by legal before we can do X, Y, or Z. And, you know, I, it, that was an alien idea to them. And despite the fact that WebOS is based on Linux, it is. It's a Linux variant, right? Mm-hmm. So, it's not like it's that crazy an idea, but it's built. It's built on open source projects. But the idea of like being open source was not, and it took them a huge amount of time to ever open source a bunch of stuff. And I, I think that it probably, you know, contributed to some extent to the demise of the product. Um, because they were constantly like fighting with that idea of like, how much are they going to open this up and how, you know, will the developer program, well, you know, and now it's alien to us. I think to the idea that like a developer program would be like, you can't share the documentation. Like, why wouldn't you? But, but Apple still kind of does stuff like that actually. But for the most part, you know, companies don't do that. All their, 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 all their documentation for everything is out there. All their API stuff is all out there, right? Because they want people to build applications for it. But wasn't this also sort of at the sort of the beginning of open source, or, or you know, wasn't really super popular and in well, corporate it, America yet? It wasn't as popular as it is now. I mean, now people have bought into it completely. But I, I think there's a second thing that goes into that too. That was particular to Palm. I mean, Palm, the technologies that preceded it, Palm had not, was, was like BlackBerry, was like any other closed source, you know, business software company, right? Uh, 
Mm-hmm. They done the Palm Pilot and all that stuff and things like that. And it was all about patents and technologies that were all secret and stuff of that nature. Um, another significant thing, though, was that all the people around WebOS um, and and the and the and the Palm Pre, uh, all of those folks were from Apple. Um, okay. They had come out of the iPod project. And had gotten hired, you know, had gotten offered really good things at Palm and went and tried to recreate that success. And, um, and those, you know, Apple is not a company that is open at all. They're not transparent. <laughs> That's not how they operate, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that culture permeated that, that Palm was, I mean, there were still a lot of companies uh, that were closed, but there were a lot of, you know, this was 2009. This was not like 2001. Um, it's true. Yeah. You know, uh, Linux was the dominant server OS already by that time. Um, the web was very much an open platform and had been built on those kind of ideas. Um, I think what was different was that other kinds of platforms like mobile, and desktop software and things like that were not necessarily open. It was just, you know, I was really coming out of that web, that web group. Um, and I sometimes feel like if they had said, we're, one of the things I think was interesting about Palm is that I think they did not really embrace web developers, which seems kind of silly when it's like, hey, we've made a platform that you can, that all the, the native applications, quote unquote, for it, are written in HTML, JavaScript, CSS. Yeah, that but, does seem weird. But they, but they, because they didn't really work in the way that people who work on the web work, which was very much an open kind of community thing that you learn from each other, and that you know the technologies are not closed; they're open. Um, and you want people to mess with your stuff. You can hit view source, and you can look at how the thing was made, and. Um, that was not the way that, uh, they operated. Uh, so that was, uh, I don't know. I don't know how much of a difference that would have made, but I could have seen them if they had really tried to embrace it because the only other company that has really tried to do it since then, um, uh, has been Mozilla and they simply, I they don't have the expertise and commitment, I think, to pull off making a real mobile platform that is of any note, right? But the Mozilla Firefox OS is conceptually very similar to WebOS, at least in the idea that it's a Linux and that it runs a, you know, a browser engine on top of it, and most of the application and all the applications are written in that, right? Um, mm-hmm. Are written to use that browser engine as that. That's the stack, right? And that's the only other company that has really tried to pull that off. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, they, they did not uh, succeed in that. And I think that's because Mozilla is, not, is great at many things, but one of the things they're not necessarily great at is uh, getting lots of people interested in things other than Firefox. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, I mean, and so it's a bummer. I would have liked to see that, but I don't think that the people, I think that it was... You know, the, the, it was a great platform that they did not know really what to do with and also didn't have them and then but didn't have the money to fight people in other ways. Like they did not have the money to take on Apple or 
you know, Google or anything else. So. But was that then the, the end of, of Spaz? Or, or did you continue to develop, to develop the, the desktop client? Well, I kept working on the desktop and the mobile client up until HP killed off WebOS. Okay. And at that point, um, well, and when I say killed off WebOS, what they did was they stopped making devices that use WebOS, that ran WebOS. And WebOS still exists. Uh, it exists. It is owned by LG. And it, it, there are, you could buy TVs uh, that run WebOS. Um, there's, uh, it's a smart TV platform basically now. Um, and there is still a WebOS team that uh, you know works in California and is you know works for LG. Um, and I know one of the folks who works on it who came who was I think was at Palm and then went to HP and then went to LG. Um, uh, but when HP did what they did, I pretty much I was pretty burned out, right? And it was pretty frustrating. And because um, this was also this was a a nights and weekend project, the way I understand it, right? Yeah. And and so there's the other side of it was that I had spent a ton of time working on it. And uh especially after I left the university, it was hard you just end up spending I don't know, you just don't have as, as much downtime, it felt like to me, right? Uh, and, um, cause the university, the pace could be a bit slow at times. And, uh, it wasn't so much like that when I went out and, you know, in the private sector. Um, but the other thing was I was, I was burned out on it. And also it was just, I was, I was burned out like because of that, but I also, because of what happened with HP, you know, not making devices anymore. But there was a whole other aspect, which was how it was affecting me personally, and like the, how the stress levels that I was putting on myself, how they impacted me and how they impacted my relationships with people. And they impacted them quite negatively. And so I stopped doing it really because I felt like it was um, not healthy for me mm-hmm. anymore. And yeah. so that's why I stopped working on it. Um, and that was... Uh, a, you know, that was a key thing for me and, and might have been a key reason why I started kind of thinking about like, you know, as a developer, what's the, what are the things about like the stuff that we do and, you know, what's the point of, you know, doing this stuff and what makes us happy and are we really happy doing X, Y, or Z? And, and so maybe that started making me think a little bit about that stuff. But um, that was, yeah, I stopped working on that. Um, but I mean, it was a pretty successful um, uh, open source project. It ran for four or five years. It was an end user oriented product, which not a lot of open source stuff is. Uh, and uh, I, I'd say it was really successful and something I'm real proud of. Um, but uh, I stopped working on it, and I hoped that you know I kind of turned over the assets to some other folks, and and, and they didn't really go anywhere with it. So. It's still out there, but uh, I mean, it doesn't like the API libraries don't work with the existing, the current Twitter API and things like mm-hmm. that. So I, it would you would take some work to to get that stuff functioning again. It wouldn't be impossible, but I'm not particularly motivated. I'm happy to let other people suffer with the Twitter API <laughs> um, and suffer through that. 
Uh, so yeah, I use Tweetbot, and uh, and okay. and that's that, I guess. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned uh, you left the university and went into the private sector. What? Uh, where did you go? Well, so I um, I was working at the university and was quite comfortable, but it was also probably quite lazy. So it was probably good that it came along. I probably had worked at the university too long and let myself kind of be very stagnant. Then. I got, uh, but I got an offer I kind of could refuse because it was almost twice as much as what I was making at the university, and um, I was like, "Oh, yeah, okay, well, that's kind of <laughs> hard to turn down. I should probably try this." And I could work remote. That was the other thing, right? I didn't want to move, so that was a key thing that was like people would occasionally ask me about working, and I'd be like, "I don't want to move, and it really has to be worth a lot. It has to be a significant pay increase." And usually it just didn't work out. And well, it did work out in this case. And then promptly three months later, the uh, entire dev team was fired. Um, so oh, that did not work out so hot. Uh, um, <laughs> but uh, I then uh, got on with a with a group of folks at a company called Fictive Kin, and oh, and, um, and I was there for well, about three years, I think, and uh, really liked it there. Um, Worked on a number of different projects, some for other people, some uh, internal projects. Um, and it was actually there that um, I started doing Python stuff because we sort of made a decision after I'd been there maybe about a year to start. At the time, the PHP ecosystem was not in good shape. Um, it was a lot of very sort of it was not oriented around components. It was oriented around frameworks. And so you had a lot of like siloed um, sort of communities around different frameworks. And, and I, I didn't really care about any of them. Uh, I was pretty frustrated by it, wasn't happy with that situation. Also did not really like, liked less and less uh, big full stack frameworks. It wasn't the way I kind of like to work. And there were, you know, say probably five or six major full stack frameworks that that was where sort of like PHP was at the time. There was no, I mean, there was Pair as a component library, but what I, I when I started dabbling, I did some stuff with NPM or with Node.js, and of course you have NPM with that. And then um, I did start doing some Python stuff and using pip on that. And I was like, this is way, 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 way better than it was <laughs> at PHP at the time. Way better. Um, is this pre-composer? Yes, this is pre-composer. Okay. And so for about a year and a half, we were just like, this is stupid. Right. And so we decided to go with Python because we felt sort of like in terms of like quality of libraries and how was what was the language like and stuff like that. Python seemed like the best bet. And uh, so um, and it was a good choice. Uh, I would say about a year after we sort of did that switch where we started doing stuff in Python. Primarily, we did stuff with Flask uh, on top of Flask and um so I did a couple sites, uh, you know, as part of a team where I did, did it was all Flask-based development. Um, so I did some front-end and some back-end stuff with that. Um, did uh, did some a couple pretty big backbone JS projects too. 
Um, and uh, learned a lot from that, which was uh, Backbone needs more than just itself to write large applications. Um, but I, so I wrote, still was writing a lot of JS, writing uh, quite a bit of Python. Um, like Python a lot, it's a great language. But what I found was that after probably a year, year and a half into that, I was like, I start. I was kept, you know, kept was quite aware of what was going on in the PHP community. Still had tons and tons of people I knew and who were very active in it. And I would still say I was fairly active in it. And you started also the podcast in the meantime as well. And you that was still sort of yeah. Dev mm-hmm. Hell is is very PHP centric. I would say, or, or started yeah. out that way. I think. Yeah, and I'd say it still is. I mean, I think it's because both of us have been, you know, both of us are kind of lifelong, you know, career-long PHP developers primarily. But at the time when I started it, I was like, uh, you know, no, I'm doing a lot of Python stuff. And I'm like, I, you know, there isn't a good thing that's like PIP or like NPM for PHP, right? And I was like, this is what I, how I like doing things. And it's not, there isn't stuff like that in PHP. And so I was kind of kind of sick of it. Well, I would say that Composer really, really turned things around, and and it pushed it the the rise of its popularity pushed people to value component uh, components. I think and interoperability over um, sort of siloed full stack stuff. And I would say. And the and so I started getting sort of more interested again in PHP, probably, uh, uh, and 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 you know, to the point where I was like, you know what, I kind of want to go back and do PHP stuff again, and um, I wasn't sure that was going to happen at Fictive, and also there was like some opportunities I kind of wanted to have where I felt like I could lead teams and there probably wasn't a good opportunity there because the hierarchy is very flat there right there's not much hierarchy um i didn't have a chance to do that but i didn't end up leaving fictive and worked at a company on a uh, uh for uh legal aid uh case management software uh that was really cool they do really cool stuff that ends up helping tons of people this huge old code base but uh, a really complex tool um that was not sort of like my optimal, probably PHP going back into it experience. Um, <laughs> it was still a lot of, a lot of like pair stuff, and you know, it was just. But it was an old, it was an old project talking about like things that stick around. It was like a ten-year-old project, right? Um, but a successful one, you know, one that uh, was still being was was act, being actively developed on. And still u- was used by tons of this this uh, niche or, or this group of uh, you know people who needed who were mostly non for profit not pro- non for profit non profit or not for profit legal aid services um, and it provided them with a, a powerful case management tool that did more than uh, mo- and was better than the other options in the market and was cheaper too. So um, that was, you know, a, a, I think a cool thing to work on for a while. And I think I learned a lot from that in that I, I remember when I first started there and it's just this massive code base that was really hard to understand. I mean, this huge Postgres database with like thousands of tables in it. Right, um, so it, it just scarily huge, right? 
And I remember being so freaked out about working on it that like, I, I just felt like I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know how I'm going to actually learn. I'm, I'm ever going to be productive with it. Uh, and I was really, really, really upset. Like the first several weeks I worked there because I thought I had there was no way I was ever going to figure this out. Um, I really stressed. Like I would be, start crying and stuff like that because it was I was so upset and so anxious that I was going to screw up. That I would that I was not like how am I supposed to do this? I cannot figure this out. Um. So is is that? Yeah. You you know because you 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 wrote this um, I think it's a micro framework or micro library manifesto. Is yes. that did that come out of that or was that already before that? That was actually before that. So okay. great choice on my part to uh, go. What's <laughs> uh, I mean an application that predated even common uh, MVC pattern frameworks in PHP. Yeah. So predates that even, and so. Uh, it was just hard. It was hard, <laughs> hard to follow. Uh-huh. And, um, but I got okay at it. Um, I'm kind of good at debugging big code bases like that and just figuring out stuff because I've had to do that a lot. So I just do that pretty okay. Um, and so I got decent enough where I was able to be somewhat productive and worked on some things and contributed. Um, and I think the big thing that I learned about it was that I learned that I was capable of at least keeping my head above water and figuring things out, even if they seem really, really complex, right? And if I stick with it, I'm going to be able to figure it out. And I learned that from that project. I, I really was scared going into it. Um, and that was significant to me. I, that was so. That was like the biggest thing I got out of that um, was being able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was pretty happy there, and didn't necessarily intend to leave. I wasn't there that long, and then um, an opportunity came along to uh, to join up at Graph Story uh, with um, my friend Jeremy Kendall, who's the CTO there, uh, and an opportunity to come in and be the first uh, tech uh, hire there uh, and to act as lead developer and what they call head of developer culture. Um, and and uh, I was, so that was just an opportunity where I was like, I really felt like I wanted to be in that position to sort of establish stuff. I felt like I'd been doing this long enough. I wanted to be able to say, you know, I think this is how we should do stuff and, and, and have, you know, feel like that I could set those kinds of standards. And this was an opportunity to do that. And that was really exciting to me. Um, and it is, uh, our primary backend stuff is PHP. Uh, and so it's been a really, really good experience. Um, I love working at graph story. Um, I've, but I didn't have any experience with graph databases, which is what we do primarily is you know, uh, graph databases as a service. Um, but I've also really fallen in love with the graph database idea and uh, I'm really into that too. So it's really been an exciting uh, thing. It's great to work with those folks. And uh, I, uh, I've gotten to do some stuff. Gotten started to do a little more JavaScript again. Just today I started working and, 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 and made a, a relatively small application with um, Vue.js, V-U-E-J-S. Um, 
which is probably comparable to something like React or um, Backbone, something like of that nature, sort of like making component-based uh, you know, UI interaction stuff. Um, but I, I, it, it's, it was fun to get back into that. Really enjoyed getting back into that today. That was really cool. So yeah. I guess I've now probably told you Far more than anyone wanted to know. <laughs> no, no. About no. what I actually I've done. have some more. I have some more questions to go. go oh, I'm sorry for you. More, but, oh, but it's, yeah, so it please. sounds like that you're you're happy in that job, and you actually are getting to do what you had hoped you could do. Is basically, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, and and so so it's it's working out well. I'm getting to work on a um, you know, with the kinds of code that I like working with. Um, I get to write things in a way that kind of makes sense to me and sort of follows those philosophies that I kind of have about how you should do things. Um, and, uh, you know, get an opportunity to sort of establish a kind of culture like I've talked about that, uh, that is one that I, I like a lot. And that, you know, so that a lot of the culture stuff sort of goes into stuff I've been talking about lately with tech. So Yeah, yeah. that's very cool. So, um, yeah, I, I touched on it briefly, but the micro framework um, manifesto, you basically, you know, mm-hmm. you seem to be sort of a fan of small modular code and you actually put that in words. And I think you made a website. And, I did. And I think that was sort of a little bit before, you know, that became a thing in, in PHP, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. It was. Um, I, and yeah, yes, it was, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there were definitely people who bought into that, uh, but I was very burnt out on this idea of like, uh, if I just want to like use this kind of technology, I have to learn this huge full stack thing. It's like, and why is everybody writing this full stack stuff? I don't want it. I want it to be simple. I just give me a library and let me plug it in and it does what it does and it doesn't do anything else. And I don't want to have to basically at the end of the day, it was me being an old man and not wanting to learn (laughs) stuff like not, not like the learning curve was what frustrated me so much. Yeah. was like, and I know a lot of people I have a great deal of respect for and who, who work on some, you know, uh, very popular framework projects and I just am like, I do not have time to learn this. I don't, I just don't care. I just want to get this done. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it has to be this hard, right? I, 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 I get at the end of the day, that was what it was. It was like, I just want to get this stuff done. And I don't feel like I, I should have to spend as much time to learn all of these sort of ins and outs of how you've decided to architect this stuff just to do X, right? Right. And I kept running into that where it was like, well, uh, we wrote a good library to do the kind of thing you're talking about, but you're going to have to learn all this stuff that goes along with it, or you're going to have to spend time with it, or it's going to include a bunch of code that you don't want to include and things like that. And I was like, why didn't it, it doesn't have to be this complex, I don't think. And so, um, you know, that was, that was really where that kind of came from. Uh, yeah. But that biggest frustration was like, dude, I do not have time for this, right? It was yeah, I find, not- I find that interesting yeah. because, you know, now we have Node and we have, you know, NPM, obviously, and, right. and PHP and Composer and maybe not in that order. But it seems like, you know, P- um, Python does the same sort of thing, has a, has a package or dependency management system. And then Rust is coming along and they're building, you know, this type of thing as well. And, right. Um, so it's and and then you know you were doing the JavaScript um, 
basically desktop apps or or web apps maybe before the you know the bigger frameworks or came out and things were popular so i just thought that was interesting and and i've i heard about this on your you know the podcast that i think you started um back in what is it 2011 or something like that i think yeah i think so mm-hmm. yeah with chris chris harches and uh, so how how did that come to be because that is i think something obviously that's been going on for quite a long time now and uh something you are interested in as well yeah you know it came about because i like talking about myself and <laughs> um and and i wanted to do that more i i'd had a couple of opportunities so like i was interviewed on a couple podcasts or things like that and i was like i like doing this i could do this and well and then the other side of it is i have some experience doing um i mean actually we have talked about it but i didn't it's not necessarily relevant but i've done a lot of music and audio production stuff so um so that uh, i was like oh, i could probably do something like podcasty and so I kind of been looking for an excuse uh, to exercise uh, what my therapist describes as my confessional personality, and um, um, and that is such a good description. Uh, but only she only said that to me like a couple weeks ago, um, uh, and and I just was t- I don't I you know Chris and I weren't like super close. It wasn't like we talked all the time or anything like that, but we knew each other, and I think. I think he said, yeah, I'm I'm thinking about doing a podcast. And I'm like, I would be super into that. I am excited about, I want to do that. And he was like, okay, let's do it. And I think that was the entirety of the planning. Um, (laughs) So there was no effort put into, is this a good idea? (laughs) Or is, um, or how are we going to market this? Or things like that. There was no no effort whatsoever put into that. But I think it has worked because I think that we both like talking about things and sort of can come up with stuff to say that maybe people find interesting. And uh, I think we work well together. And so I would actually say we've gotten to be uh, quite good friends um, through this, much more so than we were before. Um but uh, so it, I think it was just serendipity, really, um, yeah. that it worked out that way. Uh, but you know, Chris is a great guy and really interesting, and um, I'm I'm really uh, lucky I get to work with him on it because he uh, sort of compliments a lot of the stuff where I don't do as well at, and I think I compliment him and some of the stuff that maybe he doesn't do as well, and. Uh, it works out, and so we kind of just end up. We do it when we feel like it, and we want to, and uh, which you, you can tell based on the release schedule. Um, but it's yeah, more, we've been doing it for a while. Regular, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's irregularish, um, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, but it's a lot of fun to do. I like I like doing it. Um, I get tired and don't feel like doing the work to actually get it online, um, which is why it often takes a couple of weeks. Uh, but, um, but it's, it's, I, it's fun to do. I like doing it. I think a lot of our, uh, I, I go back and now and listen to our episodes and I think they're kind of funny. So I enjoy actually listening to it. Yeah, which is- I have to agree. It, it works really well. And, um, the other thing that I wanted to get to is, is in one of the earlier episodes, you, uh, 
you actually um, talked about something very personal and you revealed your the things that you were struggling with and that that episode just totally blew me away and and it's oh. so weird I was thinking about it today you know it's like I remember where I was when I was listening to that and oh, wow. um, could you basically explain what that was and and what came out of that because I think that's also a big part of what you're doing today yeah it's really has has like it's really been the direction of you know personally where I've tried what I've tried to do for the past like three years, and it started out, you know I've um, I've dealt with I've had mental health issues since I was young, um, since I was in middle school, uh, and I have just always you know kind of dealt with those things that's it's just been something I've dealt I've struggled with for quite a while um, I went to uh, I went to a conference and through no fault of the conference uh, I had a really bad time I had forgotten a couple like a couple of medications that I need uh, to take and um, I forgot I have sleep apnea so I have to have a CPAP machine that I take with me did not have that um, didn't sleep well, got sick, had a miserable time, miserable time. It was very depressing, uh, d- actively depressed. It was very much not fun. So I come home from this and I'm like, oh, I don't know, you know, it was just like dealing with that. I don't, I, I wanted, I, and most of my life I wanted people to sort of, I wish people would could understand kind of like what I was dealing with. And some of that's very kind of maybe a little selfish or maybe a little narcissistic, but I do have this like kind of like my therapist said, kind of a confessional personality where I, I really, I feel like I connect with people when I talk about that stuff. Like if I feel like they understand where I'm coming from, that's really satisfying to me. So I talked to Chris and said, Hey, um, I know that usually we have kind of a fun time on the podcast, but I would like to talk about this. I'd like to talk about the mental health stuff that I've dealt with for my whole life. And he was like, okay, that doesn't sound funny, (laughs) but um, if you want to do that, that's okay. Right. You know? And so he was supportive of it um, to the extent that I think he could be, you know, I think he was kind of like, what? (laughs) okay, man, I don't really get this, but I would be happy to support you and what you're trying to do, but I don't 100% understand, and um, which is totally okay. And so I kind of just rambled for like an hour just talking about the stuff I've dealt with, talking about like when I was stuff when I was a kid and different things I've gone through and where I am now. And, you know, I, I take meds and I, I see a therapist and I, you know, it's still stuff that I struggle with and how I struggle with it and... The interesting thing was, so we record this podcast, we upload it, da da da, and you know we didn't make a huge deal out of it. We were like, "Oh, this is a little different," you know. Put it out there, tell some people. It's like, "Hey, this episode's a little different," and you know, tell it's out there. And from any of our episodes, still to this day, it has, we got the most, most by far the most response from this episode. Mm-hmm. Um. <clears throat> lots of lots of letters directly to us. Lots of talking about it on Twitter and things like that. Um, lots of people saying how significant it was that I was willing to talk about this stuff. 
Um, and which is weird because I, it, that was not why I did it. I, I didn't necessarily set out to be like, well, I'm doing it for this reason exactly. And this is, I'm going to make a great sacrifice or something like that. I don't know. It just, I don't know why to me, it's not as big a deal. I wasn't super nervous about it. I was a little bit nervous about it. I was kind of, kind of nervous, I guess I'd say, but, but I think that, you know, what I saw was just this big, huge response we got back. And I was like, well, I guess we tapped into something here. (laughs) You know, it's like, okay, we weren't really trying to, but this was a significant thing. And obviously this touched a lot of people and a lot of people got something from this. I need to keep doing something with this. That's what I thought. And for a long time, I was trying to figure out what to do with it. And I didn't know what, um, I mean for a few months and I decided that, you know, I thought about like, maybe I start a service that's like, you know, like a web of site where people could talk to each other, did a lot of things like that. And none of them seem like, oh, this doesn't seem right for me. It doesn't seem like what I want to do with it or what I'm good at. You know, it's not like I couldn't. It's just, a, it's like, this doesn't, no, it's not right. And I decided eventually that I was like, well, I think the important thing that I do is that I keep talking about it. Because when I talked about it, I got this big response. And a lot of people said it was really significant for them and that it really helped them when I talked about it. So I decided to keep doing that. And I submitted to some calls for proposals, uh, calls uh, to to some uh, tech uh, conferences that I, many of which I had spoken at before, but had just done technical talks. And I said I proposed this talk called "Open Sourcing Mental Illness," which was about, which was really just me talking about the stuff that I deal with, and a little bit in the context of being a developer, right? Because that's what I am, and that's kind of the community I know, and this is what it's like, and this is how sometimes it impacts me as a developer, and sometimes positive ways, and, and sometimes negative ways, in the way that it seems like my brain works. So I finally did, probably you know six or seven months later, I finally do this talk, um, do a talk at PHP Tech that was actually part of their unconf, and then do a, a couple other things, and the response was really, really amazing. People were really excited about hearing about this. They, I kept getting people coming up and talking to me, um, people contacting me directly, talking to me about the impact of me saying something, just talking about it openly, of how significant that was to them. And that sort of told me I guess I was on the right track. And so... I kept doing this, and we also found there were a couple other people who were doing stuff like that, too, um, like a guy named Greg uh, Bogus, um, who has done some, some, some speaking about that stuff. And, um, he, he's also in the programming it. community or in different communities? Uh, as a developer, yeah. So okay. really, this was all in this community was was was. It sort of seemed like there was a little serendipitous stuff going on. I mean, it was, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I I don't think that like I you know Greg was already doing his thing when we we were introduced to each other. So I don't know who did what first and what prompted it all, but we started talking about it around sort of the same time. Um, and then, you know, a couple other people we ran into. Uh, and um, that started this uh, program uh, that originally started out in Engine Yard uh, called Prompt, which was a company, which was a, an organization that basically was, was, would fund people to go talk about these kinds of things and to keep talking about it, keep this awareness going up. 
And so I spoke, uh, you know, with their help sometimes, and sometimes just I was able to go by myself. Uh, I, I spoke at a number of different conferences. Um, uh, O'Reilly at OzCon, I've spoken at Open Source Bridge, uh, Madison Ruby, uh, a lot of PHP conferences, Laracon this year, uh, a bunch of different stuff. I can give you this list. And it's and so what I found, I kept doing this awareness stuff, and I thought that was really significant. But I felt like I was trying to get into why, you know, what is it about our community? You know, what's going on in our community, this developer community, this, to me, sort of open source developer community. That's, that's the one that I know, and that's the community I, I sort of live in most of the time. And what I got out of it was that um, I wanted to see sort of how things were happening in the workplaces for people who were in these communities. And um, so I think a significant thing that happened was I, I put together this survey um, in uh, last year, last summer, uh, so summer 2014. And just on Twitter, just started saying, "Hey, if you," and I kind of pushed it, you know, to get people to 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 fill this stuff out. And all in all, we got like fourteen hundred responses about basically, and it was asking questions about like what your experiences are like and what your what your feelings are about um, mental health issues in the workplace. And asking, you know, there were a lot of problems with my questions, and it, it wasn't the, didn't do the greatest job probably on that, but. Um, I think there was a lot of interesting stuff that we could gather out of it. And the, the biggest things are that people are much more afraid to talk about mental health issues um, than physical health issues in the workplace. They're afraid of negative consequences of losing their job or losing respect or not getting a job or things like that. That the, there is a very significant and clear disparity between how people like their willingness to talk about physical health issues, and their willingness to talk about mental health issues and the amount of effort that the workplaces put into actually talking about those things and making sure that people know like what their options are and what their support levels are and things like that. And then I combined that with research that I did, uh, which is just all readily available about like the impacts of mental health, on uh, you know years with disability and how that impacts people and how that significantly impacts a large portion of the population um, that is as significant as many physical health issues such as cardiovascular disease or cancer um, in terms of the amount of sort of productive time lost to disability and so combining those two things you see that there's this clear disparity, right? That you have this very this thing that significantly hampers our ability to be productive and to be happy, but we're doing very little about it relatively. We're not willing to talk about it. We're not willing to discuss it with people. We don't know what our options are. And so what I've been trying to do has changed a little bit from just talking about what I deal with and talking about it on sort of an awareness level. And I do still do talk a little bit about that, but it's gone more towards how can we make workplaces safer places for developer types to, uh, who, for people who are dealing with health issues. And so that's kind of where I'm at now. And the last I've, I've sort of done, done a new talk, 
um, called Stronger Than Fear Mental or, or, uh, Mental Health and Developer Community. Um, and uh, that is really about, I talk a little bit about myself, but then I talk about, okay, what's, what is the impact of mental health in the workplace? And what are the attitudes and fears that people have who work in tech um, in that? And what are things that we can be doing? And How's the response from that? Because I think that's, you know, the employers basically need to step up and, you know, start understanding this and, and offering solutions, right? Right. Um, well, I think it's been significant. I think that, one, I think generally a very good response. Um I had to do a fundraiser because Prompt was in a situation where they didn't know where their money was going to come from. And I needed to raise funds to try to do speaking for 2015. And I set a goal for $5,000 for an Indiegogo campaign. And uh, we received almost three times that. Um, nice. So a, a very significant portion of people were interested in talking to me about this stuff. And, and in me talking about it. Um, and with that extra money, um, one of the things that we're trying to do is actually develop a um, basically kind of like a how-to for things that you can do to actually make your workplace safer and how do you implement this and what are you know things to do. So a document you can say is like, okay, this is what you should do, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, I think each workplace is going to be different and it's not going to be an all size, you know, one-size-fits-all situation, but you know, there isn't information like that for places, and in, in particularly in tech. There just isn't information about how to do that stuff. Um, and pe- that's what I started, keep, I kept hearing from people. It's like, okay, I, I think, I see why it's a problem. What do I do about it, right? And so that's what we're kind of trying to do that, but you really need that kind of stuff you can hand to people, those resources you can give to people that's accessible and gives them clear information, actionable information. And yeah. so that's well, kind of where that's we're really cool. Is that campaign now. still going? I'm sorry. Yeah, is that campaign still going on where, where you are uh, basically asking for donations? Well, so you still can donate. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's the, sort of the primary campaign was was over uh, in the spring, but um, you still can d- do an ongoing donation stuff. Um, and there's a there's a link uh, on the on the main open sourcing mental illness uh, website uh, that you can okay. click. On. Um, but and so the money still is helping. <laughs> so okay. it really it. it so no, we'll it, put a we'll definitely put a link in the show notes. Is this? Mm-hmm. Is this um, sort of focused on North America, or are you doing stuff in Europe as well? Well, I'm primarily doing North America, and there's mm-hmm. a couple of reasons for that. Is one, I just know that area, you know, because that's where I grew up, and then also because I am very nervous about traveling overseas. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, that's just an anxiety thing I have. There right. are people who, with the Prompt campaign, if you go to mhprompt.org. Um, who do uh, speak about these things and to tech audiences and are in Europe. So uh, if you want to talk to folks or have somebody come and talk to you about some of this stuff, uh, that is, uh, that's certainly possible. Um, I, but yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of focused on North America for those, really those two reasons. Yeah, that's that makes sense. Yeah. And, the, and, and particularly the issues of 
um, healthcare, uh, well, they're significantly different in, in the U.S. than they are in other countries. Uh, mm-hmm. And so how, particularly the workplace as the primary conduit for healthcare, um, is, uh, is, is a significant difference and one that I think uh, I, I'm sort of focused on, on how to solve it in that context. Uh, but it doesn't mean that much of what I'm doing, I think, is applicable and to would be applicable to other you know situations too. Right. Right. Okay. Um, I know you have to uh, go very shortly. Do you mm. have any any other questions, Khalil? Uh, no, not for myself. Okay. Should we then let's jump into the picks and and talk about those before you have to go? Um, oh yes, I would love to talk about picks. Yes. <laughs> All right, Khalil. Why don't you give us um, um, each one of us is just going to do one, and then you can give us your picks, and we'll we'll try to talk about those a little bit. So why don't you go ahead, Khalil? Okay. So my pick is uh, Cycle JS. Mm, uh, it's it's a little framework that um, lets you build web applications with observables and uh, basically functional programming which is um, in javascript which is really uh and it's i'm just trying to learn it right now i'm just really i want to buy i want to build a little thing with it and and just play around with it and it's uh, it just looks i'm very impressed by by the document uh, documentation and by the introduction that the author did uh jsconf budapest and uh, so uh definitely recommend checking that out very cool um, I came across a blog post by Raquel Valles, who is the co-host of uh, our other show, um, Reactive.audio. And she talks about exercise in the context of um, serious uh, disease, um, not necessarily as a, as a prevention, but um, in the case of cancer and, and similar things, the her point was is that basically your chances of fighting it or, or uh, surviving it or getting over it quicker are much, much better if you are in good physical health before you get sick. And um, yeah, that's just something that I, I know, but <laughs> I, I always forget and I convenient, conveniently tend to forget. So um, she has a few um, ideas and, and talks about what she does and how to get motivated to exercise. And uh, I just have to try to do that as well. So I could definitely recommend that. That's uh, a blog post titled Exercise, and it's by Raquel Velez on her blog. We'll put a link in the show notes. All right, Ed, um, what are your picks? Man, my picks. So they they don't have to be, like, developer-oriented, do they? No, they can be whatever you want. Oh, yep. gosh. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that stuff. Um, let's. There was. Uh, this was a good. Uh, oh, okay. I'll tell you exactly what you should be doing. Um, I really like this uh, guy. I think he lives in Seattle, and he writes movie reviews. He's a movie critic, and he goes by Outlaw Vern. And he's like my favorite movie critic ever. And I really, really enjoy his work. And so I highly suggest that you check out Outlaw Vern. Um, he did a uh, he did an article um, 
I'm waiting for it to load to make sure I'm not crazy that he wrote this. Yeah, he did write this. He wrote an article on, um, I don't know if you remember that 90s horror movie, Candyman. Um, and uh, I thought it was it was really interesting. I like the fact that he is a very smart writer, but is very, very down to earth. Um, he wrote for a, 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 a blog and Twitter stream that I follow called One Perfect Shot that always on their Twitter stream, they post like just these images from different movies, these really, really good shots from movies. And, um, but anyway, this particularly this Outlaw Vern article that was written on, on this blog, One Perfect Shot, is called Candyman and the Racial Divide why one of the best horror films of the 90s is even more relevant today. Um, I actually don't think Candyman is a great horror movie, but I think it's okay. But um, I think it's a really interesting, uh, really interesting article uh, and worth, or essay, I guess, really, and is worth reading. So, uh, and the dude's website is outlawvern.com, V-E-R-N. And uh, he is a really, really great uh, writer. And if you like movies uh, and you enjoy having fun with movies, I think you will like his stuff a lot. He is really good. Now, is this something he does for fun under this name, or is it is this as part of his profession as a writer? I don't know what he writes a lot, so he clearly takes it very seriously. I cannot imagine that he makes enough to live off of doing this. Okay. So he probably has another job, but he is very good at this. And he sells like he sold a couple of books that he's self-published and things like that. Um, uh, but yeah, I don't know what he actually does, but boy, he is great. And he does just, he review like all the, or a lot of the current movies or do he just picks certain ones? Some, he does yeah. some, but he tends to focus on um, sci-fi and action and horror genres, um, which are which are genres that frequently don't get a lot of mainstream, like really good criticism, and and oftentimes, if you're a person who enjoys those genres, um, those movies often. You know, from mainstream critics, aren't very well reviewed, and uh, it's refreshing reading it from some from the standpoint of, or from the perspective of somebody who does enjoy those kinds of movies. Yeah. Um, but still, you can be critical and say, "Yes, that was a terrible movie." Um, <laughs> it wasn't just like, "Well, all horror movies are awesome." No, they're not. I mean, there's there's a difference, but there is something about like being an appre- you appreciate the genre. It's sort of like I really like heavy metal, and if you don't like it you're going to think it's all crap, right? Um, but when you are into it, you can still make these differentiations between like, well, this is good and this is not good. And it's, you know, it's opinion, obviously, but um, he's, uh, he's really good. So I, I would love it if more people read his stuff. Okay, cool. <clears throat> what else do you pick? Do I have to pick something else? Um, if you, you don't have to, you could, okay, you, since you like heavy metal, can you give us what your, like, what would you pick as your current favorite song or album? Oh man, that is, that is super hard. Um, the song that we use for the intro and outro music to, um, our podcast, the Dev Hell podcast is, um, Out of Hand by Entombed, um, which is one of my favorite metal songs but um i actually don't think the album that it's on is a, a favorite of mine mm-hmm. um what have i been listening to lately that i like really well i always kind of go back um probably one of my favorite metal albums 
is Wages of Sin by Arch Enemy. That is a really good album. Um, it is kind of an older album, relatively speaking, but uh, that is a really, really good album. And I would is recommend that. Is there a particular track listen. off of that? There's a song called Burning Angel that's probably my favorite song off of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is really good. Uh, so uh, if you dig that kind of thing, um, I really like that jazz. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, um, this has been extremely interesting. And uh, I would like to thank you for coming on and spending quite a bit of time with us and telling us your story. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much. Oh, thanks, man. All Thanks. Right. I'm glad. I'm always glad when somebody gives me a chance to just ramble on about myself for a long time. So, the very kind of you to do so. And uh, I'm sorry you had to listen to all of it, but uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's been a lot of fun. It's it's been a lot of fun, and I, I'm Likewise. glad you gave me a chance. To come. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, um, you can find the show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at uh, descriptive.audio. Um, if you could, please leave us a rating on iTunes. And uh, my name is Henning Glattergotz, and you can find me on Twitter at uh, hglattergotz. And I'm Khalil, and you can find me at Khalil Tweets uh, on Twitter. And uh, yeah, so um, if uh, so, to the listeners, if you have any feedback, you can uh, you can always contact us um, on Twitter at uh, DescriptivePod or uh, send us. Um, feedback at the Slack chat um, where you can find the link on the site as well. Yeah, so that's it. All right, thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.